Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the ASPCA Cornell Maddie's Shelter Medicine Conference podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Dickerson, RBT VTS ECC, and I'm honored to share with you my conversations with two awesome members of the shelter medicine community. Let's go. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. I'm Nicole Dickerson, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Stephen Kotchis of the Oregon Humane Society. We'll be discussing staffing and support for shelter-based medical programs, the enrichment and maintenance of these being something that Dr. Kotchis is passionate about. Dr. Kotchis has served for nearly 25 years in various positions in veterinary medicine, including Dove Lewis, Emergency Animal Hospital, and VCA Northwest Veterinary Specialists. He received his Bachelor of Science in Animal Sciences and DVM from Cornell University. His veterinary specialties include infectious diseases, which is also one of my personal favorites, so I appreciate that immunology, and emergency medicine. He has served as president of the Portland Veterinary Medical Association and currently serves on its executive board. He served on the Oregon Humane Society Board of Directors for three years until he joined the staff, and Dr. Kotchis is now the chief medical officer at the Oregon Humane Society. Well, Steve, welcome, and thank you so much for speaking with me today. I'm actually, I'm kind of selfishly excited about this because I've taken on more of a supervisory role in my own uh, career at the moment, and so I feel like making sure that my staff is happy and working in a satisfactory and efficient way are all things that I'm starting to think about a lot more. Um, So I'm kind of indulging myself a little bit I feel like speaking with you because you've already kind of approached this in many in many different ways now one thing I love to start with is because I feel like all kind of superheroes have a good origin story I would love to hear how you got into veterinary medicine just at the very beginning of your journey and then what brought you to uh to shelter medicine to the humane society that you're that you're working with now first of all i just fanboyed out that you even made a superhero reference because i (laughs) i am uh what i consider to be a a huge nerd uh or geek whatever whatever phraseology you want to use uh and i am love superheroes comics science fiction all of those things um, oh this is this is perfect yes with wonder woman being my favorite superhero um oh and yay would also like to point out that she doesn't really have a kryptonite so oh that is true you know what she does have though she has the invisible airplane you remember she that she does yes and you you would just see her crouched in the seat <laughs> But you thought it was amazing in the 70s when that was on, right? Like that <laughs> oh, was, that was like high tech. State of the art, yes. Oh, fan- fantasy world. So, yeah, how did I get to veterinary medicine? It, it, this is probably uh, a very, I think I had a very unique path in that it's all I have ever wanted to do or be from the earliest time that I can remember. Um, there was no one particular incident that sort of, you know, changed my life forever, or, uh, you know, some interaction I had with an animal that said, you know, hey, I want to be a veterinarian. It's just it's it's from as long as I can remember. It's all I ever wanted to do. Um, I think I tortured both of my parents by bringing home every creature that I came in uh, contact with. Yeah, it was just it was a, a calling for uh, a lack of um, better 
you know, I wish I had a more interesting story, but it's just, it's, it was what I was meant to do. That's great. So, I mean, you've been doing it. Now, you gravitated towards emergency. It, so- it sounds like that was like the, maybe, was that the first thing that you did? Was, no. Was it was, uh, so, you know, throughout veterinary school, well, first of all, I, I thought when I entered veterinary school, I just thought, you know, you became uh, a DVM and then you went into practice. Um, I had no idea that you could work for industry, work in research, become a specialist. Like I wasn't aware of all these like super fancy things that you could do with your life, which is kind of how I ended up in, in (laughs) shelter medicine was, was an accidental, uh, stumbling. And part of me wishes that I had stumbled across shelter medicine sooner, but originally I thought I, uh, was going to do internal medicine. There was a a short period of time where I thought I was going to be a small animal theory genologist. Um, and during my internship, so following graduating from veterinary school, I did a one-year internship. Um, I just got hooked on the adrenaline rush of emergency medicine. Um, no case was ever the same. And you got to see all kinds of, um, I, in olden times would have said crazy clients, but now I'll just say more challenging clients. More challenging clients. Yeah, there you go. Um, That's a more PC (laughs) way to put it. Uh, and you know. I just, it was, it was, uh, yeah, I was hooked. I mean, I, I, I get that. I mean, that's, the, that's how I, that's how I got into emergency medicine too. It's just like never, there was never the same thing twice. There was never a dull moment. And it gives, it gave some people like an immense sense of anxiety to not know what was coming. But I was like, no, that's the great thing is you just don't know what's coming. Anything could walk in through the door and then you have to deal with it in the moment. You're like, we'll just see it when we see it. Somewhere you, there was a transition that happened for you from, from emergency to, to where you are now. How, how did, how did you, you said you stumbled oh, upon shelter medicine. Yeah. I, well, I've got, I think I've done all the other things. So I did emergency critical care. Uh, I've done um, general practice. I worked for Pfizer Animal Health, which uh, during my time there became Zoetis. And then I did, uh, I became a medical director of a large specialty hospital um, that's how I got connected with VCA, um, and grew that team to 47 doctors. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. yeah it was a, a huge lot. hospital. Um, and while I was, I mean, all, all throughout this whole time that I've lived in Portland, um, I've kind of partnered with the Oregon Humane Society. Um, I befriended the CEO who was the CEO back then and is still the CEO now. Um, mm-hmm. We kind of got into a, uh, a heated discussion via email about microchips and mm-hmm. decided that we we're just going to meet for a drink. And, you know, the rest is history. I just we formed a close connection, um, stayed friends from time to time. She would ask for my help on things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 2000. Geez, I think 14, I became a board member uh, uh-huh. of the Oregon Humane Society. And then that transitioned to, uh, I think I just got sick of volunteering and finally just getting paid for um, my time and expertise. So that right, here I am. for all of the time you're spending. That's right. Yeah. And as the chief, um, as the chief medical officer, I mean, it sounds like you've got uh, it sounds like you got quite a bit of quite a bit of input, quite a bit of control as to how the hospital side of things work. So that seems like an accurate description of how things are for you? Yeah. And uh, I'm really fortunate because I also sit on the executive team for the Oregon Humane Society. And so I actually have a fair amount of um, input into like the daily operations across the entire organization, including 
you know, the operations side, which between operations and medical, we have two of the, you know, biggest teams. Um, right. And how many doctors are, are there now at the at the hospital that you're we, at? So including uh, we have one resident, one intern. Uh, we have mm-hmm. a full time faculty member uh, that's from Oregon State. So it's an Oregon State University faculty member that's just based here. Um, and then we have so total, including me, we have eight full time equivalents. Okay, and then would you say that there's like two technicians per doctor, or how how many veterinary technicians do you have there? <laughs> we, uh, you know, shelter medicine is a little different than private practice, so we have six CVTs on the team. Um, keep in mind, we get to utilize. So we have students and we have volunteers. So we rely probably more heavily on um, non CVTs. I mean, we realize that we can't perform our work without them. We just don't need as many as, you know, let's say we would need in private practice. But I mean, it's still, it's, it's still the same. I feel like you still need all those people to have active yes. roles with it within the hospital. Just, it just may be that, you know, the licensure isn't, isn't quite as pervasive as it is in some of the yeah, other and, places. And I tried to like the, you know, the more, um, the higher sort of the, the training and the skill set of the staff, like I want to make sure that their work is like they're doing the work that they're actually specifically trained or licensed to do. Right, um, right. Like certified veterinary technicians should be doing work that's for, you know, certified veterinary technicians. I don't want them yes. necessarily, not that we don't act as a team and everybody doesn't help everybody out, but sure. like there are, there are special skills that they're trained to do that I really want to make sure that that's what they're spending their time doing. Yes. Oh, you, you have transitioned very seamlessly, sir, into my next into my next questions, which is great. Um, yeah, it was it, the type of things that you're that you're paying attention to. You know, I feel like I don't necessarily want to fall down the black hole of talking about where the problems are. I mean, I think sure. you know, industry wide, we're seeing things like short staffing, Absolutely. you know, longevity in the career, like all of those things are are definitely demons that we're fighting with. But you know, amongst your team. Um, were there things that you were able to prioritize right away with the staff that you had, you know, areas where you saw that something could improve and, and what, what was your approach to do it? You know, did you notice that there were people who were being underutilized or that were, that weren't doing the the job that their license let them do? Yeah, I think, I think some of it may, you know, I don't know that there's any one reason um, why certain efficiencies have been kind of put into place. Um, I think a variety of things, you know, the, the pandemic certainly upended our world and forced our hand on a few things. Um, you know, we were a five day a week service and then we went to seven days a week to spread people out. We went into cohorts. But yeah, I mean, there were certain things that were, you know, brought to light either prior to the COVID or, you know, certainly because of COVID. I'll just give a, a really quick example. Um, fecals. Uh, we, you know, you can imagine we're we deal with a lot of diarrhea and, um, Oh yes. Right. So, and poop veterinary world is a wash in a sea, but there's also a lot of, um, there, there's a lot of protocols in place that, you know, really address so many issues here at, at the shelter. Uh Um, Mm -hmm. and I was seeing the staff, particularly the CBTs because they were the most medically qualified to read fecals. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of a doctor. Um, but mm-hmm. I saw them spending a lot of time and getting tied up reading poop, playing with poop, oh, preparing poop. I see. Um, yeah. 
and I'm like just, just sitting sitting at the microscope yep. and like doing the floats and, and all like, that. Like, oh yeah, this makes mm-hmm. zero sense. Let's see what kind of a deal we can get from our our lab. And lo and behold, uh-huh. it's cheaper to send out our fecals <laughs> than it is right to have, than to pay someone to sit there right, and yeah. to tie up a technician. You know, when a CVT is holding up, you know, being able to induce anesthesia or being able to do induce sedation or to monitor a patient, oh, yeah. you know, under anesthesia. Oh. And so, yeah. you know, that's just an example of like an efficiency with the appropriate use of staff. Um, oh, yeah. No, that's our, great. Our entire pack and prep process is done by volunteers. Mm-hmm. We don't use. And, there, and, the, and you have quite a few volunteers over mm-hmm. there, right? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, we probably have close to. 2,500 volunteers. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's They're amazing. not all like fully engaged and active, but yes, we sure. are very fortunate to have a, a huge uh, volunteer base um, and they're very engaged, very engaged. Oh, that's great. That's great. And did you find, you know, I mean, I do feel like in some ways COVID did open the gates of hell on, yes. on many levels in the world. One of them being the veterinary world. You know, I feel like it really, there were a lot of things that came to light when all of a sudden this huge influx of animals came through the doors of all the hospitals. Did you find that there were things that came to light when it was a huge strain and influx of, of patients that you guys were seeing? Um, you know, I think um, for me, the fragility of everyone's um, emotional well-being oh, yes. and physical <laughs> well-being Yes. Right. Prior to COVID, I think that, you know, a number of number of factors already putting stress on on the profession, um, the cost of education, whether you're going to school to become a CVT or um, going to school to become a veterinarian, um, the uh, shortage that existed before things went haywire, um, mm-hmm. the the constant battle over, you know, being able to offer appropriate benefits and appropriate pay. Right. Um, right. You know, there's sort of a, a, a disconnect between what it costs for us to get trained, but then what we're actually paid once we're trained. Um, and yes. then, you know, to be able to afford whatever the cost of living is, particularly in a metropolitan area like Portland. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I, and Portland is one of those places more so in the last like in the last like 10, 15 years, Portland has really gone up in terms of housing cost and all crazy. and gentrification yeah, and all that. Crazy. Yeah, and coming, you know, exponentially increasing. coming from originally from New York. I grew up uh, in the New York metro area and then mm-hmm. uh, spending four years living in San Francisco. You know, I know mm-hmm. what expensive looks like and I see oh my God, yeah. <laughs> I see Portland getting closer and closer to that it's putting a strain on the, on the profession. Um, there's, you know, demographic right. changes, like the veterinary classes have fewer and fewer men. Um, yes. I, there's a, a lack of what I feel to be uh, diversity in the profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. it's even more profound in a state like Oregon, which is already not incredibly diverse to begin with. Yeah, it's a it's a slew of problems. I know that's that's why I was like, oh God, well, we're gonna drown in them if we're not careful, right? But you know, but that's the thing is acknowledging it. I feel like is half of the battle. Like knowing knowing that those things are in are in place and actively trying to to do something about it, or at least have some awareness that things yeah. are going on. Yeah, I think what what kind of 
you know, when I started, it was only less than six months before COVID hit. So like a lot of things had to be fast tracked, <laughs> you know, my plans to uh, make, you know, slow and steady progress were suddenly like, you know, uh oh, uh, we, we need to do something right away. Um, I will say for me, my philosophy has always been and, and I've I'm, I'm happy that I, I work in a place where I'm allowed to pursue this. I, it, it still is sometimes a struggle. Um, my philosophy has always been if you take care of the team, right? Like you make the team your priority, then everything else will take care of itself to a certain extent, right? This doesn't say that we don't need training programs and that we don't, you know, obviously need to have, uh, SOPs and things like that, um, mm, and mm -hmm. customer service and customer, you know what I mean? But if you take really good care of your team, then they are going to be able to take care of the pets and the people that we serve. I think that's so true. I mean, and, and it, it is true that th those are the people that they have to feel, especially when there's a pandemic happening outside the doors, like they have to feel valued in the workplace that they're coming to every day. I mean, it's like a risk when you drive to work every day in that kind of an yes. environment. You have to feel yeah. like someone has your back there. And what are what are the, some of the things that you, that you were able to to do to to help to help your team feel valued? I mean, and and you know the pandemic is, is, is a very clear and present thing in our lives. I mean, but even before, Still, yeah. before the pandemic regulations had to kind of set in, like what were some of the specific things that you tried to do? I mean, you know, there's some very simple things like um, giving people the ability to make decisions and mm -hmm. to sort of reinforce, like, I am going to trust that you've made the best decision that you could with the information that you had at the time having their back be, be, exactly kind of supporting supporting the people that made that decision Absolutely. like not coming at it in an accusatory way yeah i mean that's a that's a real thing too like that's a real thing in in vet med world bullying is a thing i can't control how the clients or outside um outside forces treat us but i feel like i can control and empower all of you to be kind to each other because you're not going to get it from outside this organization or at least not all the time right so right. please don't be mean to each other yeah right. <laughs> please, please yeah love god like, you know yeah but it's true that i mean people's fuses are short during this during this difficult time you know and it's and it's the clients are like i mean i feel like that's the other thing too is like i don't know who gave the clients the permission to behave that the way that they do but we're everyone's seeing that across the board that people are visiting all of the frustrations of their lives on the longer wait times and on the price of things you know when people are out of work and so it's it is important to be sensitive about people's mental state when they're in the doors of your hospital. I mean, that's, that's the part that, just like you said, that's the part you can control, like the environment that they come to work eight hours a day in. And I think, you know, for the client facing side in previous roles is another way to have the, the staff's back is like, I wouldn't let, you know, not that long ago, um, you know, the client was always right. And mm -hmm. all kinds of mm -hmm. um, concessions would be made to make the client happy at the cost right. of the client being abusive or uh, whether it be verbally or other um, to support staff or, yeah. you know, to colleagues. And that's yeah. just not acceptable. Right. Oh, like I don't, for you. that's no one's <laughs> business is worth losing um, a staff member over um, or, you know, 
potentially making a staff member feel even bad because they didn't feel like their voice was heard or that they were supported. So we have a zero tolerance policy here. That's not just my philosophy. That's um, other members of the, of the leadership team. Like we just don't, it's not acceptable. The thing that I'm probably most proud of, and that if I could, if, if people take anything from this, um, from this podcast or this, uh, this recording is the importance of a social worker and specifically the, the growth and future of veterinary social work for our profession. Yes, I'm so glad that you brought this up. So this is a really interesting thing. There's a there's another I think they had a social worker who was working at I want to say it was at Tufts University, maybe, um, who they had hired as a staff member, they might even still have that person there. But yeah, this the social worker, it, it takes a huge burden off of the staff. And you had one of those in the in your hospital as well? What I the <laughs> I took a little gamble and I was contacted sort of I just out of the blue and I'm it just so glad that all of this happened the way it did. But I was contacted out of the blue by a professor from the University of Tennessee, their college of social work. And they have they have a mm-hmm. college of social work at the University of Tennessee, and then they also have a veterinary social work certificate program, which is a one year program. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, so they they have a program specifically for veterinary social work. Yes. Now that's something I didn't know. That's very interesting. And that is that specific to their program, or do they are they doing that in other places? It's. I think it's the only program of its kind. I could be wrong. Um, I was gonna, oh no, I don't, I don't doubt it because I'd never heard of it. To before. my knowledge, it's the only program of its kind. It, it was birthed there at University of Tennessee. Yeah. Um, wow. There's a, a a faculty member at the College of Veterinary Medicine is is also a social worker, Dr. Elizabeth Strand, and she's a phenomenal um, a phenomenal person that's kind of gotten this off the ground. So you so you obtain your MSW, or in some states like Oregon, it's an MSSW, which is a Master's of Science of Social Work, and then you do an additional year, um, or you can do it kind of in parallel with obtaining your MSSW. You do this Veterinary Social Work Certificate, um, and as part of that program, you have to do X number of hours of clinical work in uh, a veterinary setting, and it's a it's a uh, uh, remote program, so you can do it from anywhere. It's all virtual, I should say, online. And I took a gamble. There was a, a a former employee that left in good standing several years ago. Um, she got married. She moved away. Well, in that time, she you know went into a social worker program and then got into this VSW certificate program. She was living back in Portland. She asked if she could do her clinical hours here at um, Oregon Humane Society. Uh A little sort of out of the norm Uh or because, you know, normally they do their clinical hours in a veterinary hospital, um, like a a true veterinary hospital. Um, Yeah, like a private practice. So they approached me if I would be willing to host the intern for the, I think it's 400, 600 400 or 600 clinical hours. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, I, uh, I, I was like, I'm not a social worker. I was, I see the value in having, having this program. And this is something that has been always been my yeah. dream. 
to have a social yeah. worker uh, on site. And um, they were like, it's no problem. You just, you would be her supervisor. We'll hook her up with a social worker, you know, a licensed clinical social worker. That'll be sort of like the, you know, that aspect of her um, supervision. Um, and you just mm-hmm. need to sort of make sure that, you know, she's getting exposure to all of the things that we need them to be exposed to in the program. Um, so she sent me sort of a, nice. <laughs> several documents and I was like, where I was do I say, sign? You'll be like, oh, <laughs> we, we will expose her. Welcome to vet, the Correct. vet med world. We will expose. Yeah. Yes. So <laughs> what evolved out of this is just, um, I think a phenomenal exposure for this organization to see the value of a social worker. Um, you know, we have a, yeah. a, humane, invest, a, a humane law enforcement team, um, we deal with mm. animal cruelty, neglect, hoarders, Ugh, um, right. and right. Oh, you know, right. Our, Ooh, see, I feel like it, she's gonna she's gonna really be there for your staff she, during all those situations. I think what she so she came into it thinking like I want to be this amazing resource for your staff. What she left the program with is she got to be an amazing resource for the staff, but also realized the role that she wants to play for the community as well. So it was just this very mutually beneficial sort of um, like everybody was having epiphanies left and right about, you know, having this resource. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, it takes the pressure off of, you know, it it takes the pressure off of the the staff of the hospital having to be the mediator amongst all that, messy humanity that gets mm-hmm. involved you know like especially if it's something like a hoarder case or if it's an abuse case I mean that's a really difficult thing to deal with not just for the veterinary technician but I mean there's there's people that are surrounding that animal that's the subject of the investigation you know so all of those humans have to have some kind I mean yeah. they're, they've got questions they've got emotions they've got things and if you don't have that third party it has to be the doctor. It has to be, you know, the animal control officer or the veterinary technician. I mean, no one's really qualified right. in that group to deal with that intense of a human. Yeah, event, and you, you, you nailed know? it. You know, I mean, I was not trained to be um, a psychiatrist, psychologist, grief counselor, um, you know, throw in if you're working in the middle of the night, drug abuse, mental illness. Right. Like, way out of my and that's all I wanted to do was help the animal right yeah and the situations I got sucked into because there was no one else that's and right everyone was looking to me as the leader on the floor oh yeah to I mean you're take it. care of said situation oh yeah that's um, it I mean and then the, your alternative is like you know you have to wait till it gets super crazy and then call the cops like that's like that's right. that's how you don't have a you don't have any kind of other option for it now I'm curious right. were you able to keep her on so we've got her in sort of like a, um, a part-time role right now um, while we kind of like gather our forces and funding and come up with a budget so that hopefully by for our 2022 budget, this is a full-time position that's, you know, um, we're, we're, we're looking for grants, we're looking for uh, donors, we're looking, you know, like this, we're, we're committed to this role. Yeah. Yeah. Cause well, and you, you know, I feel like you did it the right way. You know, you had a little experiment. You said, is this really something that's going to be helpful? And then it sounds like it was across the board. You, 100%. Found it. you know, this is the other thing too, right? You, you can only buy so much pizza, right? You can only bring donuts so many right. times. And it's like, okay, 
the working conditions, if the, if the working conditions are such that it's just, it's making it an unbearable place to be. And not that it necessarily, that's the thing that I, I feel like I'm hearing from you too, is it wasn't necessarily in crisis mode. It was just that you didn't realize how much better it could be with this person there. But you know what I always find is it's tricky to get, you know, when you really, when you do want to reward the staff with a thing, you know, whether it be like a, like some kind of activity or some kind of food thing or something, it's hard to catch everybody at the same time. Like, do you find that you have like the morning shift and the swing shift? Have you had to kind of, have you tried to do that? Like kind of navigate the shift work side of it and try to get everybody on board with with giving them something nice or like, you know, doing a nice, like a gift card or something like that. Do you toy? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, food, yes. Pizza parties get tired, you know, get tiresome, but food is still love gift cards, um, trivia, uh, you know, because I'm a nerd, I'm going to appease to your, to your nerdy side (laughs) since you use the superhero (laughs) reference, you know, um, I did a, a trivia. I had prizes and trivia for May the 4th. Um, because I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I gave them all plenty of warning to study up on their Star Wars um, movie knowledge. <laughs> and they were really into it. That's good. And I think if you, you know, if it's if it's done in a way where you don't feel like it's the Band-Aid on the situation, like, I mean, like, because, you know, if, if you're working, like, if everyone is working all this overtime and all this craziness, it, it doesn't seem like anyone's really trying to solve the problem. They're just using the pizza right. Band-Aid. It gets old real fast. I think you have to do it in combination with structuring the workplace in a way that makes it bearable. I think not to make it harder on sort of the management or the leadership, but I think people, there needs to be a menu of options to recognize the staff. Not everyone wants it the same way. You know, that's, that's the other thing. And, and, you know, that's, that's been some, um, some, uh, some learning some learnings for us as a leadership team um, and even trying to see like what works, Um, you know, so now we have kind of like a menu of things and you can pick, you know, this works for me. We have art therapy. Um, We partnered with a Lewis and Clark college of um, I think it's, it's a subset of their college of social work and they have um, licensed art therapists. And so they, uh, wanted to give back and they reached out to us and wanted to know if we would be interested in doing art therapy for the staff. And so once a week we offer art therapy. We've got a lot of, you know, local businesses and stuff that are, you know, itching to give back. And so how do we like give them an opportunity to give back, but also get something that the staff can kind of take advantage of. And it sounds as though the response has generally been very positive from everybody that you've got in your hospital. Have you, have you noticed that there's less turnover in the last, you know, I know you've been there not just long. You've been there two years. A year? Yeah, just coming just up on two, two years. years. Well, see, I feel like two to three years, that's kind of the, you know, that's the veterinary technician turnover time is between two and three years. Have you noticed that staff has, has wanted to stay, that the longevity is pretty good there? I, 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 you know, whether it's real or not, I mean, one of the, one of the things that we measure is turnover rate and our yeah. turnover rate is, um, significantly less than other organizations of similar size and scope. I think I've noticed a difference in the morale. I mean, certainly. I think you notice it yeah. in the workload too. Like, you know, if you have, 
you know, if the brain trusts of the organization leave, like if you've got somebody who's been there six or seven years and then they choose to go somewhere else, that's a big deal. Like that's somebody who knows the institution, who knows all the people. And that's like, I feel like the turnover in veterinary medicine is a stress factor in itself because you're constantly getting people in who don't know right. the building. They don't just like literally what right. drawer am I opening? And what's what's the expense to the organization to have a high turnover rate? Like every time you oh, lose yeah. someone, like that actually costs, costs costs your organization a fair chunk of change to train someone new, invest in someone new. How much time are you spending, you know, making them go through all the training programs and, you know, at all costs money. Well, and you know, a lot of places, cause the, the veterinary technician shortage, that's real. Like they have a bunch of signing bonuses that are getting thrown around. I mean, that's all mm-hmm. money. If, and I think that your, your philosophy of investing in the people that you have in the building in that moment, that makes a lot more sense. You know, that's not, and it's not as stressful for, it's not stressful for, you know, and you know, management alone, it's not as stressful for management <laughs> to have to deal with it all the time. Yeah. I mean, I think that we have to be thinking more about, a more um, we have to think a little bit more outside the box than just offering more money or offering yes. these ridiculous signing bonuses. Um, having an insurance program or having insurance benefits that actually reflect what the employee needs. You know, it's a it's a largely female workforce, but yes. most insurance plans don't support um, our our women in uh, that want to have kids. Right. Oh, the insurance, preach, Steve, yes. the, the insurance <laughs> plans are crap yes. for anything but a single person. And I see technicians jumping from practice to practice to practice for a dollar more an hour, 50 mm-hmm. cents more an hour. Right. And not thinking about, OK, what's the culture like? What's the clientele like? What's yes. the team like? What you know, what are the benefits like? Right. Um, and, you know, that's taking its toll, too. Um just thinking oh, yeah. of it more it's, as like an hourly wage and not all the other things. Exactly. It's it's that that's a good way to think of it. That's a good way to put it. Like it's more than just the hourly wage. Like I mean like there's a lot more to consider. I mean especially because it's, you know, this is a this is a career that, you know, if if you got into it for the money, then you needed to talk to somebody else. <laughs> yeah, you, know? you needed to talk to somebody um in your um yeah. DeLorean um space <laughs> time travel machine that could go back. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I think there there is more of a global perspective about it. I mean, yes, it is true that you know, like you want to make sure that the like the workforce is is valued for sure for what they're doing. But there's but there's a whole it, the culture of it is what you, it, and it's also the culture is what you can control. Like you can control it in your building and hopefully if if people are satisfied with how things are going, then they're going to stay. You know, it becomes yeah. a home in a way. That's that. I think that that's a. Yeah. I think that's a healthy, a healthy perspective. Yeah, I, they need to be valued, um, and they need to, they need to see the job as again. They need to have some value in the place that they're working in. You got it. Oh, Steve, I feel like that's an excellent. That's an excellent way to conclude this. I feel like that's that's great. That's even a good little soundbite at the end. <laughs> That's Dr. Stephen Kachis of the Oregon Humane Society. Huge thanks to the ASPCA, Maddie's Shelter Medicine Program at Cornell University and Maddie's Fund. I'm your host, Nicole Dickerson. Thank you so much for listening.